G'day everybody. Um, today's Bible reading will be from Acts chapter 21 and it'll be through verses 1 through to 40. So give you a minute to find that in your Bibles or whatever. Page 773 in the Church Bibles. Acts chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed onto Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was unloaded, was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there, onto the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews that live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would, made, would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. 
they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some of the officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. I knew the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Silica, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. And you'll have to wait till next week to hear what he said. <laughs> G'day. Um, it occurs to me I haven't got the headset mic. That's fine, isn't it? Okay. Um, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your fatherly goodness to us in our lives and that you are supreme. You're the Lord. We praise you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, his lordship over us, that he is um, our mediator, our high priest ministering for us now. He is the ruler of all. We praise you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who takes all the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and applies it personally to our lives. We praise you that you are present in us through him and we praise you that he illuminates our hearts and minds with your truths and we pray that he would do that today. So please shape us as your people. Speak to us, feed us because we depend upon your words. We live only by your words and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the passage before us, Acts 21, presents us with lots of questions about knowing the Lord's will, and we'll cover those. But far more astounding, I think, is the example of seeing someone who not only knows the Lord's will, but he does it. Kent Hughes, uh, the American uh, preacher in speaking on this chapter drew a parallel between Paul here and Martin Luther. On April 14th, 1517, Martin Luther was on his way to the historical Diet of Worms. He was in the deepest danger. The emperor, Charles, had forbidden the sale of his books and confiscated them, and the future for Luther seemed grim. His close friend and confidant, George Spalatin, sent him a message warning him that if he went to Worms, his future would probably end up like that of John Huss, the earlier Czech reformer who had been burnt alive at the stake. 
Luther, speaking to his congregation, tried to console them, saying that Huss had been burned, yes, but God's word had not been burned and Jesus was still alive. And he sent his friend his reply, I shall go to Worms, though there be as many devils as tiles on the roof. On the 16th of April, Luther entered Worms. And even though it was dinner time, some 4,000 people lined the streets to witness his entry. On the following day at 4 p.m., Luther stood before the world. Before him sat Charles, the, the heir of a long line of Catholic sovereigns, scion of the House of Habsburg, Lord of Austria, Burgundy, the Low Country, Spain and Naples, the Holy Roman Emperor, ruling over a vaster domain than any save Charlotte, Charlemagne before him. And Luther therefore stood before the world. And as he was being confronted by his accuser, the Archbishop of Trier, Johann Eck, Luther asked for time to think through his thoughts once again. He was given that night for prayer. And that night he prayed as he had never prayed before. And he records something of what he said that night. How frail and sensitive is the flesh of men and the devil so powerful and active through his apostles in the wise of the world. O thou my God, my God, Help me against the reason and wisdom of all the world. Do this. Thou must do it. Thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with these great lords of the world. Indeed, I too desire to enjoy days of peace and quiet undisturbed. But thine, O Lord, is the cause, and it is of righteous and eternal importance. Stand by me, thou faithful, eternal God. I rely on no man. O God, stand by me in the name of thy dearest Son, Jesus Christ, who shall be my protector and my defender. Yea, my mighty fortress through the might and strengthening of thy Holy Spirit. And so on the following day, the 18th of April, 1517, a larger hall was secured. It was so full that only the emperor could find a seat. And then came the exchange, Johann Eck, Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one who can understand the sense of scripture? Would you put your judgment above so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed through the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church and all her fathers, believed unto death and given us as an inheritance, and now we are forbidden by the Pope and Emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors that they contain? And then Luther. Since then, your majesty and your lordship's desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not 
except the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do, I cannot do otherwise. Amen. Now, it has been said that that was the greatest moment in modern history. Here was a man who knew God's will. Through the examination of God's word, Luther had come to understand that the righteous shall live by faith. He understood the truth. He knew God's will. He knew what was to be proclaimed. There was no doubt about it. And so Luther knew that he had to go to Worms. But there is a second aspect of Luther that even transcends this, because not only did Martin Luther know God's truth, he did it. And that is what sent Martin Luther above the contemporaries of his time. Others knew the truth, were feeling towards it, but Martin Luther did it. He was a man who knew God's will, and he did God's will. He was like the Apostle Paul, whom we encounter in Acts 21. His instance of obedience to God was not going to Worms, but going to Jerusalem. But with the same knowledge that he was to be bound and he would suffer there for the name of Christ. Both Luther and Paul knew God's will and they did God's will. And that, it seems to me, is the big challenge of Acts 21 for us. So today there are only two points Two major points on your outline. There are lots of subpoints, but there's only two main points. Knowing God's will, verses 1 to 16, and then doing it, verses 17 to 40. First of all, knowing God's will. Now, the chapter begins with Paul tearing himself away from the Ephesian elders. So he's on the coast of Miletus, just there, right? Just south of Ephesus. The Ephesian elders have come down. And he meets them for the last time. We covered that last week. And he sails from Miletus to Patara. And then he changes ship. And he sails nonstop the 400 miles across the Mediterranean Sea to land at Tyre so as to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost where he thinks he'll have maximum impact for the gospel. At Tyre, he seeks out the believers. He stays overnight. And we read in verse 4 that through the Spirit... They urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And yet, what does Paul do in verse 5? He leaves. With the touching scene of all of them coming down to the beach, kneeling and praying with him, just like what happened with the elders of the Ephesian church on the beach at Miletus. They really care about him. And that begs the question, well, why then does Paul go? Is Paul being deliberately disobedient to the Spirit of God? And the answer is no, because last week, in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul had said there that he's compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So the Spirit is compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem, and at the same time, through the Spirit, the disciples urge him not to go to Jerusalem. So what's going on is the Spirit deliberately sending mixed messages, contradicting himself. No, 
because the Holy Spirit does not do that. So what's going on? Has the transmission of his message got confused along the way? And if that's the case, how can we discern God's will for us? Well, this is an issue. Sometimes, you know, you face a decision, you pray about it, you ask for God's guidance, you're seeking that God's will be done, you weigh the alternatives, you become convicted and convinced on a decision, you count the cost of doing something else, only for then to have a well-meaning Christian brother or sister in Christ urge you not to go in the direction you've settled on, maybe even saying, I believe it's God's will for you to do the opposite. This has happened to me several times in my life, I'm imagining for women Micah there with your decision, complex decisions about missionary work. Yes, this happened to you too. Well, none of us with this spirit want to deliberately be disobedient to him or resist him. So how do we know how to discern God's will for us in our lives? Well, this issue gets compounded for Paul. He arrives the next day at Caesarea down the coast. That's Caesarea's the the port city that King Herod built for Jerusalem, 100 k's inland, but anyway. Again, Paul seeks out the disciples at Caesarea. He goes to the house of Philip the Evangelist, not the Apostle Philip, the same Philip who evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. After that, he settles in Caesarea, Acts chapter 8, verse 40. 20 years later now, Paul is there and... Um, and Paul is prophesied about again, probably through Philip's four unmarried daughters who prophesy, certainly through Agabus who comes down from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And with all the prophetic drama of an Old Testament prophet who uses props for his message, Agabus unwraps Paul's sash belt from around his waist and with it he ties up Paul's hands and his feet and he says, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And the pressure reaches breaking point in verse 12 when even Luke, who authors Acts, who's Paul's traveling companion here, he joins in and he says, when we, when we heard this, the prophecy from Agabus, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to, only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up, says Luke, and said, well, the Lord's will be done. Okay, so now there are two ways of saying this with sad resignation. Well, the Lord's will be done or with settled trust that the Lord's will be done. I think there was a bit of both there. So Paul's compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and then through the Spirit, the disciples at Tyre urge Paul not to go. Through the prophet Agabus, Paul is warned by the Holy Spirit that he'll be bound by hand and foot if he goes. Everyone there urges Paul not to go, including Luke, and then Paul says he's going, and they say, well, the Lord's will be done. How do you make sense of all that? A few points. Well, first, from the time of his conversion, Paul knew what God's will for his life involved. Jesus himself had made it clear. 
Because after converting Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Jesus sent a man called Ananias to Paul. And Jesus said to Ananias of Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And Jesus also added, I will show, show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's 20 years later, Paul has already suffered much for Jesus' name. He's been imprisoned, he's been flogged, he's been stoned within an inch of his life with rocks, right? Not drugs. <laughs> and he knows he's still to proclaim Christ to Gentile kings, which probably means Caesar. Added to that, we know from last week, the Spirit is compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem. So Paul knows what God's will for his life involves. Second, we need to distinguish between the Spirit's message and the disciples' message, which are different. In Caesarea, the Spirit had said what would happen if Paul went. This was a prophetic foretelling. That's not the same as the disciples' plea for him not to go. The Spirit predicted from which the disciples drew their own conclusion and then made their plea. Now, most likely, that's what's happened at Tyre as well. Now, that makes Paul's decision to go a decision in line with what the Spirit was compelling him to do, not one that was disobedient to him, but one that was even more precious because he knew what the cost was if he went through with it. So I want to apply this to us. How do we discern God's will for our lives? Now, this is my suggestions, all right? Let me give some pitfalls to avoid and some advice to follow. The first pitfall to avoid in saying what God's will for your life absolutely is, is not to go beyond that which God has explicitly revealed. That's a mistake that the disciples made concerning Paul. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff which God has not said about our lives. But there is a whole lot of stuff which God definitely has said about our lives. And we need to know the difference between those two and not get them confused. So some of what we call God's will has been revealed. Honour your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Pay your taxes. Pray for everyone. Make disciples of all nations. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do not commit adultery. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And we could go on. But much of what we call God's will is, in fact, a matter of wisdom. Does God want me to move to this place next year? Does he want me to take this uni course as opposed to that one? Does he want me to marry this or that person? There's a huge amount of freedom on this and making a decision is more a matter of wisdom and having a go and trusting God in the decisions you do make and asking him to honour the decision you make in his name rather than being obedient or disobedient to a revealed path. The second pitfall is to make our own comfort and self-preservation the primary lens through which we evaluate what God wants us to do. Now, of course, no one wanted Paul to suffer, including Paul himself. He, he was willing to suffer in Jesus' name, but that's not to say that he just wished it like he was a you know, masochist or something. 
But to use comfort or the absence of suffering as our lens through which we determine what God's will necessarily is or isn't for us, that is a mistake. And if we are doubting this, and I press it because we, I think this is our error, we just need to ask if Jesus had used that lens in working out what was the Father's will for him, well, where would that have left us? You know, why was it that no one except Paul considered Paul's going to Jerusalem and suffering in Jesus' name exactly what God wanted Paul to do? Well, it seems to me our apostle teaches us here because rather than making comfort his primary lens through which he could discern the will of God for his life, the lens that Paul used was whether what he did brought glory to Christ's name or not. He says, I am ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord. The third pitfall to avoid is to impede God's will in someone's life. The disciples went very close in doing this for Paul, and it took great resolve on the apostles' part to walk the path that he knew that he had to do. And we need to be careful not to be a stumbling block to someone walking in obedience to God. So there are some pitfalls. Here's my advice in discerning God's will. First of all, hold on to God's revealed will. Of course, by all means, listen to the counsels God has given, the advice of godly Christians, the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, the voice of our conscience. But if a course of action causes you to go against what God has revealed in Scripture or go against conscience informed by Scripture, it is not God's will for you. You've got to hold to what's revealed above all. Secondly, follow Christ in pleasing God. What's significant in Paul's journey is that Paul follows almost exactly in the footsteps of Jesus as Jesus came to Jerusalem. You know, Jesus had to set his face in grim determination when he went to Jerusalem, knowing what would happen when he got there. Same with Paul. He had to be torn away from the Ephesian elders and Jesus' sufferings in Jerusalem were predicted three times. So were Paul's here. Jesus would be handed over to the Gentiles when he got there. Same with Paul. Exactly the same phraseology is used. And the point for us, I think, is to see that if we're going to walk in fellowship with Christ in striving to please God, if we've repented of our sins, if we're in prayerful dependence upon our Father, then generally it is easy to discern the will of God for you. You can apply the four S's, you know, am I truly saved? Am I truly spirit-filled? That is, am I depending upon God's active work in my life and on him for my strength? Am I sanctified? Am I submitting to God? If I really am all these things, then if true, it's hard to step out of God's will. As Augustine said, love God and then do as you please. Okay. Third bit of advice, rest in God's sovereignty. Paul knew what would happen if he obeyed God. But he didn't know where it would lead. He didn't know everything about the future. But he knew that God was God. He wasn't. He was content with that. He didn't have to know every detail of the future for him to be able to step out. He stepped out and he rested in God's sovereignty. And then fourthly, fourth bit of advice, do it. When you know God's will for your life, don't let anything derail you from doing it. 
Luther and Paul both knew God's will for their lives and they did it. Though in Worms and in Jerusalem, there were as many devils as there were roof tiles. They did it. So if God has convicted you that you need to repent of a sin because living a holy life is God's will for you, which it is, do it. Repent of that sin. If your conscience, not pride, is convicting you to take an ethical stand, then do it. If God has con convicted you to take care of someone who's needing your help in Jesus' name, then go ahead and do it. If God wants you to, to mend a broken relationship or admit you're wrong or confess a sin to someone or seek forgiveness in Jesus' name, then do it. If God is convicting you to share Christ, if God is convicting you to give yourself to discipling someone, if God is convicting you to give your life to him in Christian ministry, then do it. Don't not do it. Do it. Do it like Paul did it. Now, we haven't got time to cover the whole of the remainder of the chapter, but let me draw attention to five features which marked out Paul's doing of God's will when he went to Jerusalem. First of all, God gave, sorry, Paul gave God the glory. When he got to Jerusalem, he straight away went to the church elders there, to James, Jesus' brother, head of the Jerusalem church. Josephus said he was so pious, his knees were like camel's feet. He spent so much time on them. He goes to the other elders as well, and then he reported back the results of his third missionary tour, which he's now finished. But instead of you know, listing out all that he had done, verse 19 says he reported in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. In obeying God, he, he was careful to give God the glory. And he wasn't formulaic about this. He wasn't being artificially and falsely pious. Because when James and the elders heard what Paul did, instead of praising him, they immediately praised God. To God be the glory. That was their first and most impulsive reaction upon hearing what God had done through Paul. Sola Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. When we seek to do God's will, it is worth asking, whose glory am I really seeking? Am I seeking to glorify God or me? Second, he was concerned to maintain the unity which Christ had achieved and the Spirit has brought the church. He wanted to maintain the unity of the church. Now, Luke doesn't record this, but in Romans chapter 15, verse 25, we discover one of the reasons why Paul was so driven to go to Jerusalem in person was because he was bringing a, a financial collection that he had been gathering from the Gentile churches that he had founded. He's bringing that back in support of the Jewish church in Jerusalem as an expression of unity to help any impoverished Jews in a time of famine. Now, Paul wasn't sure how this collection was going to be received. Would it be seen as an attempt by the Gentile Christians, or sorry, would it be perceived by the Jewish believers that the Gentiles were trying to buy their favour or something like this? And so in Romans 15, Paul asks the Roman believers, pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there. 
Paul wants to deliver it in person so as to eliminate any confusion about the motive of the Gentile churches in bringing this. Now, why? Because he wants to maintain the unity in Christ between these very divergent groups. And he doesn't want there to be any seed of division planted or misunderstanding. He, as the apostle to the Gentiles, strives to maintain the unity. So when we are seeking to do God's will, it is worth asking, am I working to maintain the unity of believers or is what I'm doing somehow contributing to division? It's worth having that in mind. Third, Paul aimed to win others. Almost immediately from hearing from Paul, the Jerusalem leadership then alerts Paul to a massive tension that his mission work amongst the Gentiles has caused in the Jerusalem church. Rumours amongst Jewish believers are circulating that Paul has been teaching Jewish believers out there to stop obeying the law of Moses. Now, that is a rumour. That's gossip. We know from his letters to the churches, he certainly had been saying that obeying the law of Moses can't save you, can't save Jew, can't save Gentile. No one can be saved by trying harder. We are saved only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's true for Jew and Gentile. And he'd certainly been teaching the Gentiles that they are not to place themselves under Jewish law. But now people have confused this and they're saying Paul was teaching Jewish believers out there that they could now ignore the law of Moses. Now that was gossip and slander. And so it was suggested that Paul should join four others in undertaking a seven-day Jewish Nazarite vow. He should go to the temple, he should go through the ritual purifications, take seven days, shave his head, and Paul should actually show that he's really committed by paying his expenses and the expenses of everyone else, which was substantial, because these purifications involved animal sacrifice, and he had to buy all the animals for this. And they recommended this just to demonstrate to the Jewish believers that Paul wasn't anti-Jewish. And so he does it. Now, the question then is raised, if he's free from the requirement of being under the Jewish law himself, why does he do it? In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone, with the goal of winning as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings, the blessings being people people who won for Christ on the day of Christ. So his, his goal was the salvation and the good standing of others before Christ. He uses his freedom with other people in mind. Application. When we seek to do God's will, is it with the goal of winning others like Paul? Fourth, in obeying God's will, he experienced opposition. Hostile Jews see Paul, they accuse him falsely of being against the law and against the temple, which, I mean, he's just going through a seven-day purification thing at the temple. It's, it's exactly what he's not 
doing, <laughs> being against the temple, and he certainly hasn't defiled it. But people accuse him of this. They come running from all directions, and Paul, it's, things are out of his control. He gets dragged from the temple. And it's while people are trying to kill him, we're told, that the Roman commander runs down with his soldiers. He drags Paul from the rioters. Same word, the, the, the rioters are dragging Paul. The, the, the Roman so, uh, commander is dragging Paul. He drags Paul from the rioters after Paul has been, you know, murder has been attempted on his life. They arrest Paul and they bind him with two chains, hands and feet, just like Agabus prophesied. Paul didn't will this for himself. It happened to him in the process of obeying God, just as it, is, as it happened to Jesus. And then after being manhandled, beaten, no doubt, with a bruised and bloodied face, with swollen lips, perhaps swollen eye, still shackled in chains, Paul asks permission then to speak to the crowd. Now, that's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, we would have forgiven the apostle here if he'd simply limped back to his Roman cell to lick his wounds. But he takes the chance to speak, and we'll cover that next week. In seeking to obey God, this is the point, Paul makes the chance to exalt Christ before his audience. Now, why? The only reason I can think of is that he had a heart for his own people to see them saved. In Romans 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Application. When you or I embark on a course of seeking and knowing God's will and then determine to do it, do we take every chance to exalt Christ because our heart's desire is to see people saved? When we pray, may your will be done on earth as in heaven. And I heard everyone pray it. When we pray that, you know, we can only pray that because first of all, in the lines before, we prayed that great missionary prayer. Hallowed be your name. And may your kingdom come. Paul's operating with the heartbeat of Jesus. The heartbeat, actually, Jesus taught his disciples to have. Father in heaven, thank you for the great example of the Apostle Paul. May increasingly we know your, may we know your will, may each one of us know your will for our lives, and may we know your collective will for us as your church. And then knowing your will, being convinced of it, May we do it, may we do it for Jesus' glory and not hold back. Amen.